We sing hallelujah to the Lord this morning, the great I am. We praise you this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. And we're going to do something different this morning than we did for the last two weeks. But we are still in a series on the book of Romans, and we're returning to it this morning. So turn to chapter 9. Dwayne, throw the switch back there that bring the seatbelts down to tie everyone into their seats so that no one leaves during the sermon. All right, I'm going to read from Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. Romans 9, 6 through 24 for context. I won't possibly be able to do justice to this whole text this morning. It will end abruptly with a to-be-continued. And you can be certain, Lord willing, that we will be doing the same thing next week. Why are we laughing? Because Marge always says, Lord willing. And she said it Sunday, I'll be there. She said Thursday night, I'll be there Friday, Lord willing. And the Lord was not willing. (laughs) And they weren't there. All right, so I digress. Back to verse 6 of chapter 9 of Romans. We read, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of him who works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy." For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, 
which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would join with the preaching and proclamation of this, your holy word, your Holy Spirit, O Lord, that he would open our hearts and minds to some of these, the difficult truths of our faith, O Lord, but let us receive them. As Isaiah said, precept by precept, here a little, there a little. O Father, in Jesus' name, feed your sheep this morning with this, your holy word, we pray in his name, amen. I don't think I have to say that that's, if not a difficult passage, uh, certainly a controversial passage, wouldn't you say? I want to preface something for you this morning. When we come to passages like this, and if you're going to do a series on Romans, you're going to come to Romans 9. And I'm going to ask you, right now I'm going to make this very simple for you. I'm going to condense this whole chapter down to one statement, one question. Who saved you? That's it. Who saved you? I could say, how did you get saved? And your answer would be, God saved me. God is a savior. Jesus Christ is a savior, an effective savior. He saves people. He doesn't cheer, he's not a cheerleader hoping a few people get saved. He's not at his wit's end hoping that his blood might be applied to some hearts out there. He's applying it. He is a savior. And this is the testimony of that here. Let's go into it before I preach the whole sermon, before I get to the sermon. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, if you remember, because we didn't talk about um, the book of Romans for the last two weeks during the Easter uh, traditions and season, but this goes back to Paul's lament at the beginning of this chapter. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to turn to the beginning. You know, Paul gave this great treatment of predestination in, uh, in chapter 8. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there can't be because God did the work and no one can undo it. And he has no intentions of undoing it. He could have stopped there. And so as Paul read this, he realized some of his Jewish brethren had not only not been saved and believed in Christ, but they weren't very kind to him. When he came. And so he grieved for them the way you may grieve for your friends and relatives who have not come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the same sense we get. And so Paul grieved. And he said, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Friends, I rejoice in the doctrine of election and predestination that was taught to us in chapter 8. But there is a sadness to it that I can admit to because Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, admits to that. There are some there who have not been so blessed and so privileged as we who are the chosen of God. 
He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Even though we know all of that, there's a sadness in the fact that some are and will be left behind. And Paul's expressing that sadness. And it's a thoroughly human sentiment for him to do that. It doesn't make us unfaithful to be sad that not everyone gets saved. And I think it should rightly cause us to grieve the expiring of certain souls without Christ. And that's what he's doing here. So we may remember that the Apostle Paul began this section with great sorrow and sadness of heart. He grieved openly about his earthly brethren, as we've just read, about unbelieving Jews. And he said he would take their place before God. He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. In other words, I would go to hell if my brethren in Israel could be with Christ. And to make matters worse, it seems his fellow Jews were operating under a serious misunderstanding of their place before God and their supposed status as the so-called chosen people. I've often said, friends, to you, a false security is worse than no security at all. Because if we're not truthfully apprised of our need for Christ, we've no incentive to improve upon our needs. If we're not properly apprised of our sin nature, we don't know we need a Savior or even to seek God with, with the appropriate urgency that it requires. We're talking about eternity here. So Paul uses the rest of chapter 9 to explain the misunderstanding. He says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And that has to be the case. How can you be called the chosen people when some of you make it to glory and some of you don't? And so the term is misapplied, and he said they are not all Israel who are of Israel, meaning it's it's, um, poignant there that the term Israel means a different thing in each time he says it in that same sentence. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, and then he, he doubles down on it. He doesn't say, oops, I made a mistake. He said, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. And he goes on to prove this in the powerful incremental way that I think only this apostle can do. So he uses the rest of chapter 9 to explain the misunderstanding and to show that though the Old Testament contains the very same principles as the New Testament with regard to the path to salvation and the place of the Jews before God, that certain doctrinal realities are much clearer to us in the age of Christ than they were in the ages of Moses and the patriarchs. You know, there's an old saying. It says the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Have you heard that? I don't know who said that first. I was at Capitol Hill Baptist a few weeks ago and and Mark Dever said his mother told him that, but I don't think she made up the, uh, the saying. The new is in the old concealed. All the truths of Christ are in the Old Testament concealed. They're in the types of Christ. 
I mean, start with someone like Joseph. I mean, it goes right down to falsely accused, sold for 30 pieces of silver, becomes king of the land, you know, the whole thing. And then, of course, it goes right down through. There are types of Christ, types of John the Baptist. And so the Old Testament is preparing us for the realities of the new. And so it's clearer now than the, in the age of the, of the patriarchs. Now, there's a reality of evangelism that makes the task of the evangelist very difficult. I'm sure you've all thought about this. It is the essential task of the evangelist to speak eternal truth. Romans 9 is contained in that truth. I am evangelizing right now. That's my task. That's what I'm doing. The evangel is the word of God and I'm teaching from it. You understand? Evangel in the Greek. Ewangel is the word translated gospel in English. The evangelist speaks the word of God. Speaks eternal truth to the society of men. That's what our task is, right? What makes that task extraordinarily difficult is that most men are already content with the truth, in quotes, that they think they know. They think they've reasoned for themselves if, that if there is a God, what he would be like. That's what most men do. That makes it very difficult to say, no, what you just said, God's not like that at all. He's like this, and it says it right here. And they might say what one person said to me one time, well, that's fine. That's the Apostle Paul. That's one man's opinion. But you see, only God can open your heart to know that that is, that is one man's opinion, but that man is God. And Paul is speaking for him. So evangelism is difficult because the truth is a difficult pill to swallow at times. You remember when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't do it, you have no part in me. And a bunch of the Jews, you might expect, said, that's a hard saying. We liked him up till this point. And many of his, quote, disciples left and followed him no more. Which leads us to believe there are believing disciples and there are unbelieving disciples. There are disciples of Christ, that just means followers, students, right? Who are just waiting for one offense before they vote with their feet. Just waiting for one distasteful doctrine and they walk away. I tell you, these things ought not to be so. Jesus turned to the twelve and he and he didn't say, so do you understand what I said about eating my body and drinking my blood? It's pretty offensive when you think about putting it that way, right? And he said, why don't you go also? You would think he'd say, no, I, I didn't really mean that. I was just trying to get rid of that bunch. But he didn't do that. He said, why don't you go also? And Peter said what we have to say. Where will we go? You're the, you have the words of eternal life. In other words, you're the only show in town. Friends, you may not like a, a blue sky, the fact that it's blue. That may not be your favorite color. It's not mine. I like it with the sky, though. I'm okay with that. But it's the only sky you got to deal with. If you don't like it, there's nowhere else to go. It's like that with God. Where else shall we go? Truth is difficult especially in our finite minds. It's difficult to wrench someone out of a truth that they think they know or want it to be that way. 
And that's really how we are. I remember being that way. I didn't come to Christ till I was 30 years old. And I had 12 years of government religion and four years of Catholic religion to dismantle all my thoughts in the first place. Friends, people can feel attacked or their safe space invaded by introducing information that cancels out years, even generations of perceived truth. Imagine telling the, the sons of Abraham that they're not guaranteed to be with God just because they're sons of Abraham. All their lives they thought that was true, you see. Many of us may have thought it until we read Romans 9. I don't know. To tell a population of people who ardently believe that the path to God as they currently understand it is wrong is an unenviable task. And it made this apostle cry. But this apostle is determined to undertake just that vocation, if you will. He's willing to make the effort. And frankly, so am I. Knowing full well how those who went before him fared in the attempt. I give you Stephen, right? Who told the Jews they killed Christ, then they're in trouble about that. And so they killed him. And the same with Jesus. Jesus was constantly saying that other people were going to fare better than the Jews. Remember this one? Um, It'll be better for those of Sodom and Gomorrah in in the judgment than it will be for you, he said. They didn't want to hear that, right? So we're embarking on a passage that might be the most dangerous doctrinally. And I've always told you doctrine is dangerous. Don't tell me, oh, I can't use that in evangelism. That, that won't go. Friends, evangelism's a dangerous prospect. It got a lot of people killed. So I'm certain that all of the controversy regarding this passage comes from presuppositions of the reader and not from the lack of clarity of the apostles' words. Paul is very, very clear. And I want to tell you, presuppositions, things we already think we know, are very powerful things in our brains. And it's hard to break through those. And logic and good arguments just doesn't always do it. You need the intervention of the Spirit of God to change hearts, to break presuppositions. I remember everything I thought I knew was smashed when I heard the gospel. And I thought, I remember my first thought, what if this is true? If this is true, then I don't know anything, and I'm a pretty smart guy. I got to give up everything I know. I got to start over. Like Mr. Spock in that second, uh, no, forget that. (laughs) So I'm going to attempt to do three things as I go through this. Uh, To hold fast to the meaning of the words. Number one, words mean things. God introduces his thoughts through words. A lot of people spent a lot of energy translating this into English for us, and the words mean something, and so we receive them. I won't change the meaning of words to suit presuppositions. Number two, I'll try to preserve the intent of the argument. Paul is intending to teach something here, right? And in my view, he carries it out rather well. Now, you can say I don't believe it, but you can't say it doesn't say that. And number three, I'm going to follow the logical stream of ideas as they are given by the apostle. He's very sequential in laying them out. He builds one upon the other. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. That was so easy to demonstrate. 
Abraham had two sons. One was called, the other was not. It was so easy to demonstrate. And he does that. So it's all too easy a matter for us to superimpose a man-centered, or we might say politically correct, twist to the clear sense of what Paul is teaching here. It seems to me that what we'll find in this passage is that though we are of the human race, or rather, though we of the human race consider ourselves to be the darlings of the universe, that in the final analysis, it's only what God considers us to be that counts. Now, I think he does consider us to be his crowning achievement. He said so. We're made in his image, right? The other majestic beasts aren't made in his image. Only us. But perhaps we think too highly of ourselves and what we're deserving of and what we think a loving God should be like. Perhaps we think too highly of ourselves in these matters. This is then perhaps the most God-centered section of the New Testament and quite probably of the entire Bible because he goes against every man-centered instinct that most of us have. I've heard arguments all my Christian life with respect to the subject of election, which it's interesting. I've told you before, I would rather call it selection than election because election sounds like you're voting on something. But if election is a vote, there's only one voter. <laughs> um, and I found it interesting that in my reading, Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to it as selection a few times. In parentheses, he wasn't trying to change the whole scheme of things. But I felt that if he could say that, then I could stick by it. So I've heard arguments all my Christian life about the subject of election as this apostle lays it out. And so this very controversial passage comes with a not-so-controversial response. And that non-controversial response is, that's not what it says. That's all you have to do is say, I, it doesn't say that. And why that's non-controversial, I don't know. You know, we've come to a place in society where reason, where logical arguments, where obvious observations of things like male and female don't apply anymore. Friends, the church can't fall into that. I'll listen to your argument, but I won't let your argument make me stupid when I have a path here to perfect knowledge. A path. I didn't say I had perfect knowledge. <laughs> so due to the difficult content of the teaching that we, in the end, may find ourselves in disagreement with Paul's clearly argued beliefs is apparent. I've heard people deny it my whole Christian life. But I say that such a response is non-controversial due to the fact that so many Christians stare this truth on the faith face and, and just deny it. They deny it on grounds of a personal sense of fairness that they assume a loving God shares with them. I'm a fair guy. Give everyone a fair chance, right? This is America. Everybody has opportunity. We want now, uh, you know, a guaranteed outcome. We used to have guaranteed opportunity. Now we want guaranteed outcome. God doesn't do that. If that's fairness, that's not an attribute of God that I could see. They deny it because it smashes any saving power of the free will of man. It's the pride of man that assumes that our destiny is, or must be, or should be within our grasp, or at the very least within our control. Friends, let me tell you something. Chapter 8 of Romans guarantees if you love Christ, you'll be with God. 
But it can only do that if God did the work. If you did the work, it, you could fail the next day. It's only because he chose that we can hold on to a guarantee. I like guarantees. Lowe's isn't too good with guarantees. I can tell you that. But I'm good with guarantees. Sorry, I had to go there. It, it came to mind. So it's the pride of man that assures that our destiny is or must be or should be within our grasp or at the very least within our control. Romans 9 is not only demolishes Jewish assumptions regarding the progeny of Abraham, it denies certain popular Christian notions regarding our part in our own eternal security. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, do not think to say to yourselves that you're the sons of Abraham for God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones, and I'm here to tell you that's what chapter 9 is about. God raised up sons of Abraham from the stones or from nothing or from his own will. Indeed, God did raise up a son of Abraham at will. He raised up Isaac, or as they would say, Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laughter. We use these names. They're really words. So when they would say, oh, here comes Isaac, they would hear, here comes laughter. Isn't that interesting? My name is Daniel. That means, Dan means judge, and E-L means Elohim, God. So I'm judged of God. Oh, here comes judged of God. Here comes Abraham. They would say, here comes the father of a multitude. You know the guy with no children? But God called him father of a multitude because he calls things that are not as though they were. And then he makes them that way. So the Baptist said, don't go and think because Abraham's your father that you're all set. And, and I would say to you, don't go thinking because you're in a Reformed church that you're all set or you got your, your doctrine straight that you're all set because it really, in the final analysis, is about something a little deeper and, and in a sense a little simpler than that. God either changed your heart or he didn't. And so he raised up Isaac. And so God said, I will bless Sarah and also give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of many nations, Genesis 17, 16. Later on in 18, he says to him, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, she's 90, as you know, he's 100. I don't even know if I would think that was a blessing. I'm 66, and I'm done. I got three good stallions, and I'm all set with that. I'm going to bless you next year with a son. And so rather than rejoice that Isaac is chosen of God and loved of God, the Christian instead laments that Ishmael's rejected of God. We don't like that. And guess what? Guess who else doesn't like election? Abraham. He didn't like it. If that characterized your sentiments this morning, I would ask you to consider where are your tears regarding the fate of Cain? How about Pharaoh? Shed any tears for Pharaoh lately? Because God hardened his heart? Paul raises this very thing in the chapter with regard to the Lord God, hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He said, for the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in the earth. Where's your sympathy for Judas? Or Haman? You remember Haman? The book of Esther? How about Goliath? Why did David kill that poor giant? He should have preached to him. Got him saved. How about Herod the Great, the one that kills all the babies? How about Herod? You're grieving that Herod wasn't chosen of God for salvation? And surely we 
Musk lament over the presumed fate of Caiaphas, the chief architect of the crucifixion, right? No, sometimes we're okay with election, (laughs) right? But we're not like God. God chose Samson, and he did everything wrong. Even Jesus, in his last moments on earth, prayed these words to the Father. He said, Father, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He makes a distinction. It's all throughout Scripture. If you're willing to deny the clear meaning of the words of this passage, then we must reappraise our whole approach to the written word of God. Is it the inspired teaching of the Holy Spirit, or is it the flawed interpretation of a mere human being named Paul? And you know what Paul means? Little. I don't know why he changed his name from Saul to Little. But he did. Maybe God did that. So he wouldn't think highly of himself. It doesn't tell us. But Paul gives us sort of a novel concept. He says, For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of him who works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Lorraine Bettner. Have you heard of Lorraine Bettner? It's a man, by the way. It's not a woman. A man named Lorraine. Uh, Midwest, uh, I don't know, uh, 1950s or so. Uh, Princeton man. If you haven't read Bettner, you're missing something. I have to tell you. It is some of the most encouraging, informative illustrative. He's full of wonderful illustrations that explain things, and he's just so logical in his thinking, but I have a... Did I, did I print it in yours, that there's, a, that there's a quotation here from Bettner? If I didn't, this is it. He said, if the doctrine of election is not true, then we may safely challenge any man to tell us what the apostle means by such language. Right? The language is, they're not even born... They haven't done any good or evil yet. And the whole reason I did this is so that you'll know that I did this. Because Jacob comes out and does a few wrong things, right? To be fair. And his father favors the other guy in both cases. Neither Abraham or Isaac really liked election. I've heard intelligent believers walk away from these truths shaking their heads in disgust when the contents of this passage are unpacked and inspected before their eyes, as I'm doing now. And it's my sincere hope that not only you, but that I am up to the challenge. My goal is to say what Paul said to another church, Thessalonica. He said, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. That's how I want you to receive it this morning. And if you think I add anything to this doctrine, then you chastise me afterwards. In fact, stand up where you are and take me on. I think the words are so plain they can hardly be argued against. You can say I don't like it, I don't believe it. But you can't say it doesn't say it. We left off a few weeks ago considering the meaning of Paul's conclusion with regard to who among us are the object of God's eternal mercy and who are not. Friends, who are the saved? Who are the unsaved? 
And then he poses the question of who is Israel? Who is not Israel? And he reasons himself into this doctrinal, historical, anthropological, genealogical conclusion. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. He even shows his sorrow for having to say it and teach it and know it. I get the feeling Paul would rather give us all those wonderful assurances of chapter 8 and not have to give us the sausage making of chapter 9. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then he begins to separate all of humanity throughout the ages into two essential classes of being. He says that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so we have two groups of humanity. We have the children of the flesh, which subsumes all of humanity, for we're all born of the flesh, right? He calls it to the Corinthians, the natural man. And the children of the promise, who belong to a select few or a select group, born out of their fleshy humanity into a new spiritual reality in Christ. They are new creatures created in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us. Now, every concept that Paul is teaching in chapter 9 has already been said in chapter 8. I just want you to know that, except he delves a little deeper into the mechanics of it. Listen to some of the conclusions of chapter 8 and rejoice in them with me this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then he does what he always does. He asks a question, what shall we say then to these things? How about praise God, sing hallelujahs? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even hold back the execution of his own son. He did not spare his own son. He delivered him up. God delivered up his son for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He gave us his best. Remember that sermon? Why wouldn't he give us all the other little things? No, you can have the mansion, but you can't have hot water. No hot water in the mansion. Mortgage is paid, but you know, you still got to pay the electric. No, he doesn't do that. He gave you his best. He's given you all things. And then he said it. All things work together for good to who? A select group. Those who love God. Those who are are the called, he says. Those who are the called according to his purpose. For I am persuaded, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we revel in those things, and well, we should. But now he's telling us we're saved, we're going to persevere, we'll always be saved, nothing can take away from it. We're more than conquerors. Neither death nor life nor anything can take it away. But now, I'm going to tell you how you got saved. We like that we are. Now he wants to tell us how we got saved. That's what chapter 9 is about. And so we, the so-called elect of God, have all these wonderful promises, all these eternal assurances, and we love to go to them when things seem difficult and uncertain. I love to go in a time of trouble and say, I'm more than conqueror through him who loved me. This won't matter for long and certainly not longer than my life. Love these promises. Such assurances, these are God's gift to us, these promises. Comfort one another with these words, Jesus said. They're given to us for our comfort, our edification, but this apostle is not content that we should merely ride along in this luxury, comfortable car all the way to glory. He gave us that luxury car, that nice ride of chapter 8, right? But in chapter 9, he's going to show us how the engine works. And roll your sleeves up. He wants us to know what fuels our ride. He reveals to us the gears and the pistons of salvation. And he would have us revel in the high-octane theology of salvation. Amen. (laughs) Paul was not under any obligation to go further in the teaching of assurance than he did in chapter 8. He wasn't under any obligation. We were reveling in that. And then what does he do? He says, so it's wonderful. I'm persuaded. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, but I'm sad and sorrowful for my brethren. Both are true. Both are legitimate. Friends, if it wasn't God's will that the saints should have access to his mind and to the divine process that took them from one place to another, from the natural to the supernatural, from sin to righteousness, from flesh to spirit, and from Adam to Christ, then he wouldn't have written them down. He wants them known, he wants them preached, he wants them declared, and he wants them received by those who love him. I've heard so many people tell me that election is a harsh doctrine and that it's not useful in evangelism. Well, so is the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood, as I've pointed out. But we dare not reject those as a truth too harsh to admit to. Consider the saints of Rome in the first century to whom Paul is writing. Obviously, it's God's will that they know these things. The inner workings of God's purposes. If we were not supposed to know, if we were not supposed to preach, if we were not given to understand the deep things of God, then God would not have had his apostle write these things. He would not have laid his apostle, or rather had his apostle lay out the principles of election so strategically and incrementally. Now I've heard people say, I don't care to know how I'm saved. I just want to know that I am. And maybe that's all you get. I don't think the thief on the cross knew how he was saved. I just think he knew that he was, right? Christ chose him, that was enough. Maybe the Ethiopian eunuch never learned theology. I don't know. Like I'm saying, you don't have to know, but God wants us to know. He gave us chapter 9. 
He could have stopped in chapter 8 by just declaring that we're more than conquerors. But he goes further. He takes us all the way into the inner workings of God's purposes so that we may discover that if we were not elect according to the purpose of God, then none of the hopes, none of the promises, none of the assurances could possibly be guaranteed if it wasn't a work of God. There's another wonderful quotation from Lorraine Bettner that I will give you this morning. He said this. This actually brought me to tears as I read it. The saints in heaven are happier than you, but they're no less secure. Think about that. The saints in heaven are smarter than you. They know a lot of things we don't know yet, right? But they're no less closer to God. They can see God and we can't. But his Holy Spirit lives in us as much as in them. Our salvation is guaranteed. It's guaranteed due to the fact that the purpose of God according to election might stand. How did you get saved? God saved me. It stands only because it's not of him who wills. It's not about your will. It's not of him who runs. It means tries really hard. But it's all of God who shows mercy. And the first piece of evidence that they're not all Israel, that are of Israel, is this. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, if you're not aware of the generations of Abraham, I'm going to ask you to leave right now. No, just kidding. Did you do the homework? Remember three weeks ago I gave you the homework? And I said, and I listened, you know, while I was giving it, because I, I, I'm not good at math, but I usually can count from like 12 to 21, pretty good. I mean, I'm not a smart man, but I know what math is. Uh, no, I, I, I can count. I told you to read chapters 11 through, through 22, right? Is that what I said? No, I'm sorry, 12 through 22. And while I'm saying it, Diane's home texted me. She's saying, that's 21 chapters. And I'm up here saying it's 11. I listened to the recording. I said 32. I was thinking 22, so I'm thinking 11. But I said 32, and I said it twice. So this is what happens when you're a public speaker. You say things, but you don't hear yourself say it. And if your wife doesn't interrupt you, then you'll never know. Generally, she interrupts me, so I get over that. But at this time... Sarah shall have a son. Okay, so if you didn't read those chapters, but you really have to go read those chapters, right? Let me offer you the basics. The patriarchs are said to be who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Paul's going to make his case based on what God did with those men, those three men. That's something that the Jewish population and the Christian population in the first century would have well known. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written yet when this was written. There was only a couple books of the New Testament written by this time, probably not well circulated. Certainly Galatians, Matthew, and James, some of the early ones were written. This was a little later, but even those that are written, they didn't have printing presses, friends. People didn't know. They had their Old Testaments, right? You could get some access to that, Of course, someone had to interpret it uh, if you were not a Greek speaker, but thankfully, because in the will of God, just about everyone in the world was a Greek speaker. And the Old Testament, of course, was in Hebrew. 
but they had the Septuagint, which was in Greek. So most of them would have known these things that you don't know because you didn't read the chapters. But um, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is husband to Sarah. You know that, right? He's husband to Sarah, and they're the father of Isaac, right? Isaac's the husband of Rebekah and the father to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You got that? And Jacob's the father of the 12 sons from four different mothers, I might add, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So sometimes when you see the word Israel in the Old Testament, it's referring to Jacob himself. Sometimes it's referring to the nation of Israel. And sometimes it's referring to the people of Israel. So the nation takes on the name of its founding father, kind of like our capital city, named after our founding father, right? So why do I say that the verse that Sarah should have a son is exhibit A in Paul's argument of why they're not all Israel who are of Israel? God says Sarah shall have a son. Why is that evidence that not everyone born to Abraham is saved? Because Abraham already had a son. That's why. Ishmael was 14 years old. Go do the math. In fact, I think it says it right up in Genesis He was 14 years old. See, Lynn shaking her head because she did the homework. Um, Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and the Egyptian maidservant Hagar was 14 years old when God assured Abraham that he would have a son even in his advanced old age. Now let me give you a little bit of my read of how this happened. God comes and he promises Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a son. First of all, they're astounded because they're already old. He's like... 90 at the time, and she's like 80 or somewhere in there. And it seems like a long time, and God doesn't answer that promise. Especially if you're that late in life, you'd think, he must not have meant it. It must have been like a a parable that he told me or something, you know, and didn't tell me how to work it out. So they worked out their own plan, a carnal plan for children. I know you take Hagar and have a son. And so for 14 years, he raises this son whom he loves, and God comes and says, yeah, that's great, but that's not the one I choose. Abraham loved Ishmael. And he said, no, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, just so we don't miss the extent of the divine aspect of this promise of a son, we should know that Abraham argued with God concerning this fact. You may remember Abraham did this a couple of times. Remember the whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah? He didn't want God to destroy those. Remember he kept bartering with God? Well, if there's 10 righteous, well, if there's five, well, you know, it went down. I think he started at 50 or something. I guess I need to go back and read it, right? But he argued with God. He was not totally content with election either. You may remember what he said about Sodom. But note that when the promise was made to Abraham, he was first of all incredulous. In other words, he didn't really believe the promise was literal because they were just too old. But Abraham did not waver at the promise of God. He did not stagger. He stood firm. And Abraham offered his suggestion to God. Do you remember? This is what he said. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, I've got a son. I I like this one. Abraham was beloved of God as no other man was, and God loved him, and he put up with Abraham's argument. He, He allowed Abraham to argue back and forth and reason with him, right? 
But he didn't give him his way. And we read this from Genesis 17. Then God said, no. No, Ishmael will not live before me. Your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So Abraham didn't really like that God did all the choosing either. But he accepted it. And he came to understand that it was, it was best. So consider, Paul has nailed down his premise regarding election. Both Ishmael and Isaac are the seed of Abraham. That's Paul's point. Therefore, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Do not think to say to yourselves, we're sons of Abraham. Some of them are the sons of Ishmael, right? The so-called son of promise will God extend his covenant relationship only to Isaac. Surely God loved Abraham and said that he would bless Ishmael in his life, but the covenant of promise went to Isaac. Every Jew of that time would be able to readily concede that distinction. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was the son of the flesh, elsewhere called the son of the bondwoman. And I will tell you, I don't even know if I should go here, but this is still all symbolic. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah has also conceived a son, in other words, Isaac's wife, Abraham set him up. Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. And he set him up with Rebekah. And they loved each other right away. They're a true love story of the scripture. Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of him who works, but of him who calls. Now consider Paul's teaching method here. I think he already nailed it down in the last example about Abraham. But he goes further. He already made the point of predestination. He's nailed down the principle that it's God who does the choosing. It's God who predestinates. It's God who calls. It's God who justifies and glorifies. But Paul feels the need to go further in the teaching. And I think he does it for two reasons. The first is that he wishes to show that from the text of the existing scriptures that the fact of election is borne out. In other words, this is not a new concept. It was a simple matter to remind his readership that God took the initiative to give us Isaac. It was God's idea to give him Isaac. It was Abraham's wish that Ishmael might follow after him in the covenant heritage, but it was not to be. It was not God's will, and Abraham had to just accept it, and so do we. But I think there's a second reason, and it occurs to me, because Paul's insistence to take the argument further is because he's anticipating an objection. He knows how suspicious and clever we can be in arguments. And he's not there to argue it. So he's got to make sure that when he writes to these Romans, he nails it down. And so he gives one more example. He anticipates an objection, and the objection is readily apparent. Do you see it? Though Ishmael had Abraham as his father, he did not have Sarah as his mother. And Paul's anticipating. They're going to say... He was illegitimate. It, that's why it doesn't apply. 
It was him who works. It was him who runs. You see what I mean? He was not the offspring of the first covenant partners, as it were. It was not a matter of election, but of legitimacy, they could argue. How would it look for the son of an Egyptian bondwoman, a slave, to be the mother of the chosen people? How would that look? By the way, a little aside here when I say that, if you look at the genealogies of Jesus, there are quite a few significant non-Jews in the genealogy. One is Rahab, one is Ruth, and if you go back uh, for his legal genealogy, Bathsheba is said to be a son of Ham. Apparently she was black. Um, But she is not Jesus' bloodline. If you remember, I digress here, but Jesus, legal, Jesus cursed the, the line of Saul, uh, the line of Solomon. Jesus' natural bloodline comes through David's other son, Nathan, which is a really good study, which I've done before, but I digress this morning, but I mention it so that you can know it's not really about genealogy and ethnicity and race to God. God chooses whom he will. He chooses people of all races, all ethnicities, Right? But Paul goes further in his teaching. What might be objected to with regard to Abraham and Hagar as the parents of, the, of God's chosen son cannot be alleged in the case of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, God came to Rebekah too. And remember what he said? There are two nations in your womb. And she probably said, it's beginning to feel like it. Sorry, ladies. First of all, Isaac and Rebekah are married. Their offspring are legitimate Hebrews and therefore the covenant progeny of Abraham. And yet the example goes even further. Paul notes the fact that the two sons are are as close as anyone could biologically be. They are twins. Now we know from other descriptions they're probably not identical twins, right? Because remember one of them was hairy and red and the other one was smooth and I guess had a nice tan, I don't know. But the promise is made before they're born, even though as close as possible the genetic equals. They're twins. They're in the womb at the same time, and God's choosing one before the other, even before they're born. He's nailing it down. It is God who chooses. And as Paul says, before either could be judged upon merit, they had neither done good works or bad, They had nothing to their credit except God chose one and not the other. The decision was made totally upon the basis of divine prerogative. In other words, their works do not matter with regard to their being chosen of God. It is a done deal. Why? Because God determined it beforehand, as he does with all things. And one further point of interest in the exchange is that Esau emerged from the birth canal first. Now that's significant in Hebrew culture. Esau is older, technically. We don't know how much older, a few seconds, a few minutes. In Hebrew society, that was of great significance. Look into the law of Moses and you'll see that it's been part of the Hebrew society since antiquity that the eldest son gets the lion's share of the family estate. He gets the double portion. He becomes the successor to the patriarch, right? But it will not be that way in this case. God's going to switch tradition just to show he's in charge. Now, he could have still chosen Jacob, and you know God in his 
mystical way could have had Jacob be born first and no problem, right? And not send all that controversy into this home. But instead he says, the older will serve the younger. He switches the tradition just to show that it's of him and not of us. And that's what Paul is showing us. He's nailing it down. And this lesson goes on. It doesn't end here. And so the Almighty reverses lawful tradition and declares that the younger Jacob will be patriarch and executor of the family fortune and that the older Esau will serve him. I must tell you that God's choice, his election of Jacob over his brother, caused no end of difficulty within the family. It was a risk that God was willing to take. Look at the the Old Testament and see how much... It's not a risk for God. It's the wrong word, but we use it in an anthropological sense so we can understand it. We put it in quotes. God doesn't take risks. He just does things. There's no risk involved, right? But it looked risky. And he knew that the two would be great enemies. But you read carefully and you find out Esau was really a loving brother to Jacob in the end. And I'm going to say to be continued at this point. Duane, you can lift up the seatbelt. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your truth. Some truths are difficult and hard to understand. We believe that all truth has merit, O Lord. And that it was your will that we should know the deep things of God. And election among them. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you give us a comfort in your word. If not a comfort of easy assimilation, then a comfort of just knowing that it's your word and the Holy Spirit engineered it to have us know it, O Lord. To have your evangelist write it and your preachers preach it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.